You're listening to War Dogs Podcast. During the Vietnam War, through the hours of darkness, over 500 sentry dogs and their handlers patrolled along the perimeters of U.S. Air Force bases. These are their stories. Here's your host, Tom Shamba. Hello, I'm Tom Shamble, your host. Thank you for listening. If you're a new listener to the War Dogs Podcast, welcome. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you can be notified when a new episode is posted. I have an important message here today. Uh, a couple days ago, December 8th, uh, Monty passed. And as you'll hear from his experiences, he was a great uh, warrior and hero and certainly a great representative of a K-9 units. So... Thank you again for listening, and I hope you enjoy this broadcast. So you've got quite a, a, a extensive history in sentry dog, uh, both in Vietnam and, and training, which is um, amazing and interesting. It's a great history. So what I would like uh, is for you to start out, first of all, what even got you interested in canine, and then... Uh, once you do that, um, where you went in, where and when you went in service, how long did you serve, uh, and then we'll head over to Vietnam, and uh, you can tell me about your uh, two years in Vietnam that you were there, where you were at, and, and what kind of issues you ran into. Um, then we'll progress on uh, to the your training days and uh, what you did when you got out. So if you'll start out, what got you interested and when and when you got started and we'll go from there. Okay, after I finished tech school, I was assigned to Ellsworth Air Force Base. And I worked Miniman missiles and I was a Texas boy that had never seen snow before. So the easiest way to leave Ellsworth was to volunteer for Vietnam. Out of my whole tech school class that went up, uh, out of the, my tech school class, we had about maybe 18 that went to Ellsworth. Two were married, that left 16. 15 of us volunteered to go to Vietnam. Wow. Because most of us had never seen snow before. <laughs> I was, Sent to uh, Da Nang. I wasn't a dog handler. They asked for volunteers for the dog section. I had turned down the chance to go through to dog school when I went through tech school. And I really, I made a mistake. I should have, I should have done it then. If I would have known how nuts I was going to be about the dog program, I would. But I was working law enforcement and law enforcement at the name was like standing in front of the bank at night with with your m16 so nobody would come in and break into the bank and i did that those kind of posts for a couple of days and they came out and asked for volunteers and so i raised my hand i went down to the kennels i was interviewed and selected the selection process was really whoever was crazy enough to go down there and do it. 
I had four days of training. I had one only spike. I had no scouting problems. We had basic obedience, little education, and filled sandbag for uh, the bunker. I didn't have a scouting problem until I went on post, and it was a real scouting problem. But the one good thing was all the handlers, that the older handlers, would mentor us. There were three other people that I went through with. And so we were, we were never left alone. We always knew that the person next, door, next to us in our post would come down and help if we had problems. And they taught us. But the most important thing that I was told was to watch your dog. And anytime the dog does anything, anytime the dog wants to go somewhere, you follow behind the dog and the dog will tell you what it is. And that's how I learned. I did not have an off-leash bite until I had been working post maybe three weeks. And it just blew my mind the, un, the aggression that my dog uh, showed. The only spike was one thing, but when you turn the dog loose on, on an attack suit, it just it just floored me that the dog would be so lovable to me, and so uh, so aggressive to uh, someone else. The reason the squadron wanted all the empty dogs working was because Tet sixty nine was coming up, and so they decided to take the uh, take the leap and have OJT handlers trained in Vietnam. The older handlers had been told the Air Force had a policy that you had to have your five level, your five skill level before you could go to Vietnam. And so they were kind of surprised that they had to wait to, to get their five level. And yet the squadron at the name was OJT and handlers. But I had no regrets, and uh, it was a very good tight section. And shortly after Christmas, that was when I volunteered to go into the dog program. And you stayed there for two years, right? I, I extended to stay with my dog. You would understand, and only another dog handler would understand that. I went home on leave and caught Christmas and New Year's. I came back, and the section had been cut. It had been cut from 40-something dog teams uh, to seven. Wow. The handlers, yeah. Dogs were sent elsewhere. Handlers were sent elsewhere. My dog went to Cameron Bay, and I went to Phuket. And then after a while, the Air Force realized they made a mistake, and they beefed the section back up again. So did they bring all the dogs back then? No. Uh, at the name, no, they just, I think they just brought, well, you, you remember in those days, dogs were just pieces of equipment. Yeah. And so they just shuffled them around like they were ordering Jeeps or vehicles. Yeah, the evolution, uh, you would have got there just before I left. We had about 67 dogs at Van Rang and we had posts that covered we were all posted every night. Yeah. And uh, we experienced the first Tet Offensive 
in 68, January 68, that uh, kind of started the whole realm. But I was thinking Da Nang got hit harder than we did. We got rockets all the time. There was very little sapper activity in uh, Tet 68 and Tet 69. The VC came up to the wire. In 68, most of the dog handlers had to low crawl off, the, off their post because of the sniper fire. Most of our posts were in front of, of Spring Marine Grunt Companies. We only had one post on the Air Force side when I was there. And then we had maybe one or two posts in the bomb dump off base. And every now and then we would get a special post. But most of the times we were working with Marines, which always surprised them because every time a new guy would, would come in, uh, when he went to uh, stand watch, they would, and, and one of the dog handlers went by, they'd always ask the guy, ask this guy what branch of the service he's in. And when we said Air Force, they were surprised. Yeah. I, I tell you what, I've done about uh, 14 of these so far. And uh, it amazes me the variation uh, Army sentry dog handlers versus Air Force sentry dog handlers. We all went to the same school, I think. Yeah. Uh, but uh, their utilization, the way they worked, was so much different than what we did. Well, there's so much flexibility. Yeah. So, plus the services all operated differently. Yes. Yes, they did. Uh, the Marine Scout Dog Program, uh, so far, is the, is the one that doesn't really surprise me because I knew they had scout dogs. Uh, I had been pulled one night to uh, provide scout dog uh, service to uh, an Army outfit. And uh, besides being scared shitless, uh, uh, it was, it was a, an awakening for me as to different utilization that we weren't trained for, which taught me a lot when I went into law enforcement. Yeah. When, when we talk about our post, uh, ours were about 100 meters wide and about 100 yards deep all the way around Fan Ray. And we posted uh, an early shift and a late shift. Early shift meant you were responsible for 400 meters for, for about two hours. And then when the late shift came out, that shrank back down to 200 meters. And then after we got off, then they spanned out to 400 meters, which is a lot of territory to cover, as you know. Yeah. Historically, that people don't know about us is how our dogs worked. As far as uh, scent uh, detection, uh, sight, hearing, all of those elements, how it was impacted by what was behind us. You know, if we were near an airport where there was a lot of aircraft running, sound didn't work really well. Wind was to our back, scent didn't work really well. So we were some nights at a real disadvantage. It was us versus the, the enemy. What did you discover while you were there at Da Nang? It sounds like you had a different relationship with your post. Yeah, our Marine posts were in between two bunkers. A lot of the posts were maybe 100 feet deep. We had a swamp behind us. So you didn't, you couldn't, there was no retreating. 
Unless you swim. You might, walk, you might have to walk a quarter mile across five or six posts to get to your post. We never had anybody from the squadron come out. They couldn't drive a Jeep. Jeeps would get sniper fire. And no officer was going to walk because if you started at one end and and to the and walked to the other end, it would take two or three hours. So we were just kind of left on our own, which was okay for a dog. The Marines treated us great. Uh, they loved having us there. They would give us a shirt off their backs. Uh, they got coffee sometimes. We never got coffee delivered to us. We didn't get anything. Uh, the flight chief could come out and he could walk one end and that was it. So if you knew, if you heard that he was on the north end and you were on the south end, you knew he was not going to see you come out. And uh, we had one lieutenant walk come out walking with him one time. And that was the only officer we ever saw. And that was the only time we ever saw a security police officer. We had one post on the Air Force side. To get to it, we were in between, the post was in between chain link fences. You had to go to a bunker, they'd come down, unlock the gate, you'd go in, then they'd lock the gate behind you. We wow. had a small sandbag canine bunker on it. And the only other place you could set down was the sandbags behind the claymores. No vegetation, nothing. We never liked that post. We were silhouetted, and one time they caught uh, the bunker that had the firing controls for the claymores. They had opened up the panel door to where they could flip the switches if they need to. And uh, when we found that, we were not happy at all over that because they would tell you that if the claymore blew, you might be able to survive if you were in your bunker. And you can't work a dog sitting down in a bunker. It just doesn't work that way. You know that. So you didn't actually walk the post back and forth and use the wind, all that? We, not really, because uh, unless the wind was blowing right, because the post was so narrow because of, of the perimeter. Yeah. From the, from the uh, swamp where it started to a road that cut through the middle of it, there were maybe 10 dog posts. And it'd take you probably an hour to walk, especially carrying all, your, all the crap we, we carry, to get from one post to the next post. I mean, to get from where you could, you could start and then you could get to the road to where you could out. And then you still had a long walk from the road back towards base. Wow. Yeah, that that is uh, very interesting, very different. Then. Yeah. Now at, now at Phuket, we had posts that you could quarter on and you could search. Uh, before they put a perimeter fence up, the posts were in between two bunkers and then they went out as far as you wanted to go. 
the axle based perimeter was like a quarter mile out. And you could you could go out that far if you were stupid enough. When I came back off, off my leave and they'd cut the section, nine other handlers and I went to Phuket. When we got off the off the uh, we flew into Quinyon, they had a deuce and a half waiting for us. They took us straight to the kennels. We were assigned dogs and they wanted us to work go to work that night with our dogs. Which I was truck sergeant. I was the ranking person and I threw a fit. I said, we don't know how the dogs react. You want to give us guns and we don't even know if they're going to shoot or not. And so they uh, they let us work, do a little bit of training. We went to the perimeter, got a chance to fire our guns, our, our GAUs, and then the next night we were on post. Conflicts. In, in your different locations, both at Da Nang and at Phuket, uh, did you experience in, uh, direct combat with your VC? Uh, we had alerts sometimes at Phuket. We'd call in and we had an alert. Defense control would always ask us, are you sure? Were you ever asked that? <laughs> you know, I never was, I, it, ironically, but... Uh... Well, Phuket, they would ask us, are you sure? And the biggest reason was they had sensors outside the perimeter. They were supposed to go off if somebody was walking past them that had a lot of metal. They had radars that were some kind of test program that were supposed to pick up people walking or, or a deuce and a half driving across a rice patch. If you low crawl, it wouldn't pick you up. So we'd call in that we had an alert. They'd ask us if we're sure. Then they'd ask the tower that had the radar if the radar had picked up anything. Then sometimes they'd call back and ask us, are you sure again? Then finally they'd say, they'd tell the tower to uh, reconnaissance by fire, to, to fire some burst in with their M60s. Then they would do that. Then the radar operator would say, I see movement. And so where were you at when they were firing these 60 cal? We'd pull back. Uh -huh. We'd pull back and then they would spray, uh, they'd spray the post. And that would go um, it happened periodically. Wow. The evolution, and maybe you saw this there as well. Uh, when Dragage uh, got to Van uh, Rank, about the same time you got to Denang. He was a sentry dog handler like I was. And his second year there, he, similar to what you talked about, he said, we had a lot of handlers that weren't very good at reading their dogs. And um, he set up a system where there were him and two dog handlers. And if you called in the alert, they would come out and back you up. And then they would, spread and that way you'd have three dogs out there to verify whether or not you had an alert. In 67, we were getting sniped at periodically at night. So it was pretty obvious there was somebody on the other side of that fence. And then there were, as it got closer to 68 and the Tet Offensive, then they were actually, uh, I, one night I had fired 300 rounds 
people shooting at me, there were like three of them. We, we set off flares and I could see them ahead of me. And the crazy part was when I ran out of ammunition, they quit firing. I don't think either one of us were injured or shot, but those are the kind of events that took place. And then when Bob said they had gotten hit in uh, the 6910 offensive, where there was a lot of uh, enemy uh, combatants that were taken down. And then of course they lost two handlers and a couple of dogs, but uh, that was a, a pretty severe uh, Tet Offensive. So he said over that from 67 to 70, he saw a lot of growth in attacks. And, um, and then they changed the whole uh, process of dogs in, at Van Ray. Is that kind of what you saw? Yeah, at, at the name, because of why our posts were isolated, uh, we never had anybody come out and back us up except for the Marines. Now the Marines were great. If your dog started working odor, just because the wind happened to be coming from off base and, and your dog would give an alert, you could go to the bunker, tell the Marines you had something and head back out and they would have one or two people. The way the Marines worked, they worked all day. They would build a bunker, move into the new bunker, tear down the old bunker, which was 15 feet away. And then a week or so later, they would start building another bunker. That was just to keep them occupied. Then at night, stand watch. And you could go to one of these bunkers and tell them that you had an alert start out towards the fence line and you'd hear something behind you and the, they'd woke up the guys that were sleeping and they'd be behind you. And that always made you feel good. Yeah. At on the Air Force side, you were a little bit reluctant to go tell them that you had a bunker because you were afraid that they were going to open up the unlock the Claymore panel. We never had any issues with the uh uh post and the off-base bomb dump because they wanted us keeping it searching the inside in case somebody, in case a sapper made it through the fence. So we weren't on the perimeter. We were inside of the bomb dump. The only other post we had, which was a special post that we picked up every now and then, the swamp, the Nang had a, had a major road that ran around the, the, the twin runways. On the sides that were the long side, on one side was the Marine part of the base. On the opposite side was the Air Force part of the base. And then off both ends were swamps. Now, the swamp that was closest to the, uh, to the ocean had a big army mortuary right on the road. And every now and then, we would end up being posted in the swamp behind it. And none of us liked that. You got off the posting truck, walked maybe 200 yards, and you went past the building. And then they'd have stacks of caskets on uh, uh, pallets. And then they'd have pallet loads of mortuary, of embalming fluid. And if a flare went up, you could read the directions on how to use the embalming fluid which really puts you in a good frame of mind. And then as, as it 
cooled down, the, the pallets would creak or the caskets would creak. You didn't know. All you knew was you heard all these creaky noises. And also, when you walked past the mortuary, they had two big doors that were screen doors. And they'd have them open for ventilation, of course. And you tell yourself, I'm not going to look in. I will not look in. And it was just like God reached down, grabbed your head. And, but that post was, it was a swamp. You just had to, you know, you, you, you worried more about uh, catching snakes than anything else or being caught by a snake. Yeah, that'd be the worst. It was just, it was just the location. Wow. Quite a, quite a bit of difference. It's, it's, it's uh, uh, interesting to, to hear the differences in the different posts. Now, Phuket, we had posts more like what you had. We had, we had two posts that, were, uh, that had never been pulled back, and they, they ended into uh, a swampy rice paddy area. We had two handlers get pinned down one night. Uh, defense control had one of the APCs, ordered the APC to go down, and the APC couldn't find the, uh, find the uh, handlers. They couldn't find the road. They couldn't find anything. Uh, I had walked close to one of the bunkers, and there was a, uh, somebody in a Jeep there. And he asked me, uh, uh, if I knew how to get down, and I said yes. And he grabbed a, a couple slings of the, uh, you know how the in, the bandoliers that you yeah. got in 16 ammo. He had a bunch of bandoliers already loaded in the magazine. And he grabbed a couple, I grabbed a couple, and we walked down and he followed me. And we had to go down and zig through the perimeter where there was a gap in it. And then we had to take a left through vegetation and that's where the APC got lost. Uh, I, I led them down to where the two handlers were. And so they were happy to see somebody because they were, they were out of ammo or, or getting close to out of ammo. And uh, we spread out in the line and fired our GAUs and then backed up. Then they dropped mortars on us, on, on, on that area after we were out of the, uh, back into the, uh, so in, in, by 1970, Tet Offensive had to be getting pretty severe. It wasn't a Phuket. No, we'd have uh, the VC did something weird. They tried uh, uh, coating their bodies with uh, some kind of garlic or something to mask the odor. And the dogs maybe couldn't smell it, but, but we could. And there were a couple of times we smelled, it was almost like onions. You know, you're walking along quartering your post and all of a sudden you smell onions. And so if we called it in, they'd pop off a couple of flares and then the onion odor would be gone. Back them up. We, anyway. had a, we had a VC company dig in. There was a ridge line that was past that swamp where the two handlers got pinned down. And uh, a rock platoon, we had a rock uh, artillery unit uh, next door to us, and they would send patrols out. And one of their patrols ran into a VC company that had been digging in, setting up mortars. Uh, and they were easy shot to the flight line, easy shot to our bomb dump. 
and luckily the uh, the the rock platoon bonded. So we had this huge firefight open up maybe a quarter mile from the base, less than a quarter mile from the from the from the perimeter. And uh, the squadron asked the rocks if the rocks needed wanted needed assistance. And of course the rocks said, no, we're fine. And it was a, a rock platoon up against a DC company. And they just whipped them up. They were a pretty tough group. We had rocks on our base as well. And they yeah. I don't know that I would have wanted to take on a rock squad. No. <laughs> Some of us took 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 taekwondo at the rock camp. It was like twenty five bucks a month, and uh, two times a week. And uh, you'd go over there, and they just scare you. But sometimes you'd watch their formations while, while we're practicing our taekwondo, and uh, the platoon uh, commander would be going down the line down a squad and he'd see something wrong. And he'd turn around to the squad leader, uh, or he, I think he'd hit the platoon sergeant first. He'd slap the platoon sergeant around. Then, then the platoon sergeant would go to the squad leader and slap him a couple of times. And then would just go down to whoever it was that made a mistake. And it was, you'd see that and you'd just blow your mind. But they were tough. Yeah, they were. A tough group. So when you left and, and headed home, where did you go? I went I went back to Kelly. Uh, I got stuck working working law enforcement. I was the only GI on my ship. It was all civilian cops. They wanted a GI. So if there, if anything come up that called for overtime, we got stuck with it. I was, a, I was a buck sergeant, which meant I could fill any position. I could be uh, an area supervisor. They even had me desk sergeant. And uh, I'd tell them, I don't know what I'm doing. And they'd say, don't worry about it. The, the desk clerk will do everything. You just sit there. And I got there and uh, I had asked for Kelly, hoping I'd get debt 37. And so I get stuck in law enforcement and I told the squadron commander, sir, I don't know anything about law enforcement. And he said, don't worry about it. The, the civilians will do everything. And they did. Um, no dogs on the base? I'm sorry, what? You had no dogs on the base? No. And there were only, there were maybe four or five GIs. We had a, a staff sergeant that was in charge of training. And then every shift had one GI assigned to it. And we'd do things like if they had uh, uh, weapons come in that had to be transported from Kelly to, uh, there was a place in uh, Fort Worth or Austin, not, not Austin, Fort Worth, almost to Dallas. And uh, if, if a rocket had to be hauled there, a GI was stuck doing the escort. So I kept a set of fatigues in the trunk of my car. And if I went to work and they said, you've got to leave in the morning when you get off post, uh, I'd change to fatigues. Uh, the truck would come by, pick me up. Uh, I'd sleep in the truck while he drove, while the driver drove. And then uh, we'd stop somewhere for lunch and uh, uh, they'd be surprised to find somebody in, in uniform with an 
M16 on their shoulder. And then we drop it off and then turn around and, and head back to Kelly. Now, the way I got to Lackland was I had contacted San Antonio Police Department, asked about their dog program. And they told me, uh, uh, well, you've got to apply. I said, yeah, I understand that. You've got to go through the academy. You have to complete your rookie year. And then you can uh, apply to, to be a dog handler. And it may take five or six years. And at the same time, the Air Force was asking for, I saw something in the Stars and Stripes about how the Air Force wanted young instructors. So I went to the uh, reenlistment section and I told them I will reenlist if I have orders in my hand to the dog school for instructor duty. And the guy said, okay. And so I went to, uh, I went to Lackland, an OJT handler, never been formally trained except by my dog. And uh, I got put in sentry dogs, which was great because I had uh, most of the instructors were army instructors. And these guys were extremely knowledgeable. And uh, the nice thing about teaching sentry dogs with Vietnam still going on, we had no disp disciplinary problems in class. Anybody that got thrown out of school was immediately sent to Vietnam as a grunt, as a, as a 11 Bravo. Wow. So we didn't have problems. We didn't have crime. We didn't have anybody missing the bus. We didn't have anybody coming out drunk, uh, hungover, because they didn't want to get thrown out of school. Yeah, I think I could have behaved as well. <laughs> yeah, the number of sentry dogs in Vietnam were going down by that time. So they're, they, most of them knew where they were going. And so, it wasn't Vietnam. So did you see quite an evolution in the training program then? Yes, because we had very few green dogs, very few untrained dogs. Most of the dogs were either older dogs that were just training aids or uh, rejects from patrol dogs. The rejects from patrol dogs would either be no biters, fear biters, or over aggressive. I only had one class that I had green dogs in. That was, I went through two classes with an, with an instructor helping me or with me learning from him. The third class, I had it on my own. And that was fine because by that time I had I had picked up enough of the training techniques and, and the army instructors were really good. If you had questions, they would they would help in heartbeat because you were by yourself. It was one instructor to maybe eight students. So did each branch have their own instructors at that point? I'm sorry, what? Did each class have their own instructor? You know, like the Army had their own instructors and Air Force? No. 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 Uh, they didn't have enough instructors for uh, the sentry dog classes, enough Army instructors to fill, to have one instructor for every class, because you'd have, uh, you know, seven, you'd have eight classes going on at a time. 
the, the, the course was eight weeks long and you always had somebody pick up on a Monday and you always had another class graduate on a Friday. So we had eight classes at, at all the time. Wow. So did a lot of your handlers go to uh, stateside bases? Stateside bases. Uh, uh, I had a lot go to Korea. The one class that uh, that I had untrained dogs, all the whole class went to uh, South Korea, to uh, uh, the Army missile sites. I so, had a Marine go to uh, Tripoli. They had a, a Marine unit there. I spent four years at Lackland. Then I went to Keesler. Then I went to Clark. Then I went to Kadena, to the dog school at Kadena. And I spent three and a half years there. I ended up as NCOIC of the school. So when you retired, you retired then from that position? No, I, 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 I left. I returned to the States to uh, Andrews. And that's where I retired from. Still training dogs at that time? No, uh, I got burned out on, I didn't get burned out on the dog program. I got burned out on Andrews. And uh, I got a chance, uh, they fired flight chiefs pretty often. They had a flight chief get fired on one of the night flights and all the overhead people, you could just see they were wondering who was gonna get stuck. And I raised my hand and I, I said, I'd, I'd volunteer for it. And I enjoyed the uh, problem solving. The most, most of the, most of the uh, flight chiefs that got in trouble with made bad legal decisions. I didn't make any bad legal decisions. I understood. I would sit down and, and read the law. Uh, at Andrews, like most bases, you could use state laws if you wanted to. And so like for military, you had uh, provoking speeches and gestures for disorderly conduct, Maryland had the same thing. You just had to know how to phrase it. It was, um, let me think how, how we did it. Uh, if somebody created a disturbance to where innocent people were obviously appalled, right? And you had to use that obviously appalled phrase. You could hit them with a disorderly conduct charge. So my logic was, if I got on scene, and somebody was creating a fuss. If I looked around and I could see anybody, even if they were in a vehicle, to me, they were appalled by the person's behavior. You just had to be creative, that's all. <laughs> so that give, uh, we had a mag court who came out every two weeks. Uh, and the judge was the judge was an ex FBI agent and an ex Chicago police officer. We got to be good friends. Matter of fact, we ended up being business partners. Uh, and uh, you'd go sign arraignments, and he would he would coach you. Up. He he bent as far towards us as he could. Uh, he'd he'd tell you know if you use this charge, then I could give the person this amount or if you would have phrased it this way, and you couldn't ask for a judge to be any better than that. No. He, 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 he was fair in court, but he was a cop's judge when it came down to it. Those are good people to have. 
Yeah, he he was funny. He uh, uh, he'd been a, when he was an FBI agent. Uh, he there was a bank robbery in Southern Maryland, and him and his partner was uh, they were close, so they drove down. And this was a small town that had that sold tobacco, so they had a big tobacco barn. Uh, a bar, a couple of gas stations, a little grocery store, and they had a hotel because when the tobacco sales were going on, they needed people for the buyers to live in. And uh, the bank parking lot was full, so he went around the corner and he parked in front of the hotel. And then he, they walked into the bank and got the information, and uh, he thought, well, let me go ask the... Uh, uh, clerk in the hotel if she saw anything and he went in and he said you know he gave the, the the description and the clerk said oh yeah that's tommy so-and-so uh, and she pulled out her high school yearbook flipped it up and said here he is and uh, george uh, got the address they went to the guy's house and caught him counting the money <laughs> and uh, that's how he got to be uh, a, a federal magistrate that caught doj's attention because he they solved that case in like an hour that's the way to and do he, it he was he was a pretty cool guy so then when you sound like when you got out of the service you started your own business no uh i I had a cardiac event while I was still on active duty. And uh, military medicine being what it is, when I passed out and I came to, it was okay. Uh, my wife's, I retired. Uh, well, I had started another business with uh, a couple of uh, DC cops. We wanted to uh, have explosive detector dogs and we were about two decades too soon the couple of contracts we got was a um, i don't know how you call it it was a conference so they had displays and uh, uh almost like a museum in the convention center and they wanted bomb dogs to search well i had gotten i trained one explosive detector dog and uh I had a, I got a DEA license for drugs. We trained a drug dog, uh, so we could we could provide drug searching or explosive, and we just we just couldn't get enough work. The dogs that I trained to uh, Rudy Drexler, one of them did. One of the dogs we sold him to Rudy Drexler, who had a big kennels in uh, Elkhart, Indiana. He had been uh, uh, stationed in Germany. He still had contacts in Germany. He would get uh, his contacts to ship him dogs that were uh, fully trained. You know, the Germans had these clubs, the Schutzen clubs, where they would do attack training and scouting and obedience and do everything our dogs would do. And they did that for fun. And they'd get these dogs trained and it was, okay, what I do with the dogs? And they would sell them, uh, they'd put them on a plane, ship them to Rudy, and then Rudy would tell the police department, now I've done something good. 
These dogs are trained in German command, so no American will ever be able to give them command. Actually, the dogs have been trained in those native, you know, in the handler's native tongues. The only mistake I ever made was Rudy kept telling, if you want one of these dogs, I'll sell them to you at cost. And these were beautiful German shepherds, just awesome. And I kept saying, no, I don't want one. And I should have taken him up on it because the dogs were just beautiful and dirt cheap. I think he was paying like four or 500 for a dog and that was in the uh, early 80s, mid 80s. And that, that was so the, so the handlers in Germany could go get them another dog and train them again with the club. After you have a fully trained dog, what do you do with it? Boy, today they're selling for a lot of money. Oh yeah. But what's so bad is you can look at the dogs and you can uh, you can tell you know whether they're uh, overseas bloodline or not, and it's a shame. I saw the dogs go down in size so much. It was funny when I got to Lackland, I was I was a century dog qualified. After about a year and a half, the the century dog classes started going started. Uh, we quit picking up every week. So you may graduate a class and they may not have another class for another one or two weeks. But what they would do, the Air Force instructors, there were two or three other Air Force guys besides me. They would tell us, uh, you're gonna go to a patrol dog class uh, that's shorthanded. And then I'd go over to a PD class and I might be with them a week, two weeks, three weeks. And then they'd tell me uh, on the Friday, you're picking up a century dog class next Monday. So I'd go, I'd have me a century dog class. And then when that class graduated, they may tell me, okay, it's going to be a couple of weeks before another class comes in. So you're going to patrol dogs. So I'd go to another team. And at first I was, I was PO'd about it. But then I realized I was getting a chance to work with all these different guys. And some of the guys had started the patrol dog concept. So I got a chance to learn because at that time, and it was, it was it, the dog school's biggest mistake was, it's my bag of tricks. If I know how to do something, I'm not gonna tell somebody else because I don't want them having my tricks. And the only way you learned those tricks were if you were working on that particular team. And so the, the, the school really made mistakes instead of, of being stressed and be open. Now, some of the guys, some of the team chiefs were. If you had problems, there were some team chiefs you could go to and they'd say, well, have you tried this? And you'd say, I've never heard of that. And then they, they would explain it and you try it and it might work. There were other team chiefs you could go to and you'd say, I, got, uh, I have a problem with this dog. And they just turn around and walk away. But the, uh, I got a chance. My, my course chief was a chief by the name of Robert Riley. And he took a liking to me. And he, got, he gave me a chance that, that was just unbelievable. There was an instructor who had 12 years at Lackland. Can you imagine what you can learn being there 12 years? Yeah, with the various types of dogs. and their... Yeah, and uh, he was fixing to retire, 
and he was patrol dog team chief, a tech sergeant. And he asked, Riley asked him, will you take a sensory dog class through? And I've got a young staff sergeant and I want you to, I want him to have a chance to learn. And Riley told me, he said, I'm teaming you up with the most knowledgeable guy at the school. I want you to learn everything you can. And so that Monday when we picked up, we, we did our day or two classes. When the dogs came out, I think the dogs came out like on a Wednesday. They were brought out to the school. Um, Marcinko, his name was Ed Marcinko. His nickname was Rocky. Marcinko uh, had, had looked through the records, knew what the dogs were, knew what their problems were. And we went through the kennels and, and he pointed the dogs out and he said, this dog won't do this, but we'll be able to solve his problems. And the reason why he knew he had solved the problems was he looked to see what teams had tried to work on the dogs. And if they were teams that he knew that he was better than, he figured he could solve the problem. And in all the dogs he did, we had like one or two dogs that were weak dogs that had been thrown out of patrol dog classes and they wouldn't bite. Uh, we had a dog that was, uh, I can't think what the phobia was, but the dog was, 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 a, was a bad fear biter. And he said, we may have a proud, we may have a chance with this dog. And, uh, but Ed was good. He, uh, when you entered, when you started controlled aggression, You'd start, you'd start, you'd have one week of uh, agitation, and then you immediately went into bite work and, and throwing control, having the dogs come out. And Ed worked on the principle that was, that was a bad mistake, that the dogs needed more, needed several weeks of, of agitation, and he preferred chase agitation. And we do chase agitation for, uh, he do chase agitation for like two weeks, sometimes a week even before the dog was given a bite. He wanted the dog all psyched up where the dog knew that he that the person was afraid of him, the decoy was afraid of him. And he was very, he always stressed to the decoys, don't you hurt my dog. You better be gentle. You better let that dog win or I'll run you to death. And, uh, but he was, he was fantastic. And I learned more from him in that eight weeks than uh, I ever learned from anybody else at the school. And so I really had to, uh, Riley uh, was, in, was the superintendent of the dog school at Kadena. And he came through at Clark and he asked me if I wanted to work for him again. I said, yes, sir, in a minute. He was, he was, he was good. He was really good. That's amazing. That that's quite a history of dogs. Yeah, I finally got a patrol dog diploma after I'd been teaching patrol dogs for a year or so. I reminded them, you know, I still don't have a patrol dog diploma. So they just slipped my name in on one of the classes, and that's how I got my patrol dog diploma. And then I had a chance to do to go through explosives and drugs. Uh, they needed they wanted to build up some extra dogs. And so they gave instructors a chance to work in the evening because we only worked from six in the morning to 12 noon. It was skate duty. Uh, I got a chance to go work for a couple hours uh, after class 
working a drug dog. And that's how I got my drug dog diploma. And then I got a chance to go through, uh, do the same thing for explosives. So that's how I got my drug dog diploma and my bomb dog diploma. You're going to hear my blue healer a little bit because my wife's fixing to come downstairs. And he goes <laughs> ballistic. When I retired, I went to work for DOJ. Uh, they uh, justice wanted to have their own police department. They didn't like having, uh, not having control. And so they decided to contract it out. I was a special deputy U.S. Marshal, but working for Pinkerton, and then Pinkerton got bought out by, I forgot the name of the company. Uh, and they, I was the night shift supervisor, which I really enjoyed because I didn't have anything to do. I could go to the, to the library, and can you imagine the kind of library that DOJ has? <laughs> I mean, it was awesome. Uh, I could go to the library, sit down, and spend an hour or two reading. As long as I had my radio, I had one post to check, and then I had a uh, uh, a patrol. And if he found something open, I might have to go in. Uh, I'd go up and be there, and then we'd have a we had a civil servant that would come up, and he'd lock it up, and then that was it. Uh, and I took the night shift because of commuting, because of the driving. Oh, I can't think of what the what the position was called, but he was the uh, project manager. I guess that's what you'd call him. He'd been my desk sergeant, and uh, when he knew I was getting ready to retire, he called me up and he said, "Have do you, have you found anything?" And I said, "Yeah, I've, I've been looking around, and I had I had interviewed with." Uh, another security company that had a contract for uh, one of the, it was gonna be a, uh, a drug task force and they needed some, they needed dispatchers and somebody to handle evidence. So they want somebody with a security clearance and with a with law enforcement background. And I'd interviewed with them. The guy told me, I've got it. We, we just have to wait for the, for the program to kick off. And I guess when my terminal leave was was still up, um, you know, I, I felt like I needed to go go back to work. And um, uh, the project manager for Pinkerton, he called me up and he said, uh, and he he and he he called me several times and asked me about it. He kept bugging about bugging me uh, about it. He said, "I'll give you one of the supervisor slots. You can pick the one, whichever one you want, whether it's the day shift." the swing shift or the midnight shift because uh, we were good friends. And like I said, he'd been my desk sergeant. Uh, and I finally said, yeah, okay. And I took the midnight shift because I had an easy drive in, easy drive home. Monty, I want to thank you a, a great deal for today's interview. And thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story. It was absolutely amazing. Number of years that you not only served our country, but uh, all of the individuals that you helped to learn this profession of canine, thank you. And uh, I want to thank you, the audience, for listening to War Dogs podcast, especially this podcast, uh, considering uh, December 8th of 2022, uh, we lost Monty Moore uh, due to Agent Orange issues. 
Again, thank you. Don't forget to subscribe to wherever you listen to the podcast and leave a review as I always enjoy feedback from listeners.